the Greg Proops Film Club, which once again convenes here at the most salubrious confines of the Shrine to Cinema with a silver screen at center stage right here in the heart of Holly Rock at the Cine Family on Fairfax Avenue in the lustrous tennis shoe and baseball cap district of Hollywood. <laughs> Where Hollywood meets dudes with caps on eating burgers as they walk down the street, copping just the slightest attitude. Uh, here's the place where we're keeping movies alive and the idea that watching them together is a fun thing to do. If you're listening out there in Proopcast land, thank you, and I bid you welcome. This is the time to pull the movie together, and uh, we can all watch it together. We're going to talk about it first, and then we're going to watch it, and then we're going to talk about it after. That's how the show works. Um, we've showed a lot of pictures. I, try to, I strive... Um, to run that line of demarcation between the wildly intellectual, informative, and esoteric, where you're blown out of your mind and go, my God, the visuals were stunning, and I'm perplexed utterly as to the nature of that film, Greg. Wow, what a genius choice. I bow down to your unbelievable judgment. <laughs> and I've seen this a thousand fucking times on cable, and it rocks when you're high. Those are my parameters. And Jerusalem shall be builded between these two goalposts. The pictures, when I say Jerusalem, of course, I mean cinematic Jerusalem, whatever that would be to you, Paris or London or New York, uh, or even here in Holly, uh, Bollywood. Um, we showed so far in the film club uh, Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Mansion. Uh, thank you. I take personal credit for making and showing that movie. Uh, we showed a movie that I can only describe, one, as a virtuoso classic in the art of what we like to call schmacting, and two... Uh, Possibly the most deliciously fast-paced Broham fucking uh, Surfnoid uh, jump-out Fucking adrenaline-packed um, Male love-making film Of all time, Point Break um, uh, Which includes uh, so many great lines Like, speak into the microphone, squid brain uh, Yeah, someone said that in a movie So, like the hand on the cave in Lasco where the bison roam on the wall so freely by the flickering candlelight, that line shall remain eternal. One wonders what the alligator makes of that line when he pops from his pond and rolls his fucking reptilian august eye jaundicely cast in that direction. And then one stops wondering and moves on. We showed With Nail and I with Richard E. Grant, and that's uh, just a terrific uh, character study and pastiche. Uh, by Bruce Robinson and then uh, for Halloween we showed Return of the Living Dead Dan O'Bannon's masterpiece thank you uh, I don't think there's a better zombie movie that has black punks in it uh, does the 80s mean anything to you at all because if it does get in touch with this fucking movie and write it a letter and shit also of all zombie movies Return of the Living Dead law is laid down like Hammurabi okay uh, bake yeah you fucking heard me Principles are etched in marble to be gazed at in quivering, fucking trembling ecstasy. In every other zombie movie, you can kill the zombies somehow. You can bore them, or you can shoot them in the head, or you can fucking put oranges on them, or whatever the fuck it is. You know, right, do a tapestry and show it to them, play an album by an, a group, that, whatever. You know, there's a various zombie fucking riffic, you know. Abraham Lincoln's going to fight zombies. We're, we're done, right? The genre's done. Stick a fucking zombie in it. It's already dead. Stick a zombie in that zombie because zombies are fucking undead dead. But when he wrote this movie, it's supposed to be purportedly the sequel to Return of the Living Dead. Are you going to talk about The Big Sleep? Hang on. I'm not done with the intro. It's purportedly the sequel uh, to Return of the Living Dead, and yet the zombies in this movie can run, they can communicate, and nothing can kill them. You can shoot their brain off, they just fucking walk around with one eye looking at you, whatever, and they go, wings, wings, like that to the whole. It's horrible. Uh, and I kind of love Dan O'Bannon for that. He's the David Foster Wallace of zombie movie people. It's really a 
Yeah, it's a movie that absolves itself and insists on itself while fucking you over. And that's a very difficult trick for a horror movie from 1980-whatever. Uh, and now tonight, of course, we're going to be showing Howard Hawks' immortal fucking film noir, uh, L.A. noir classic uh, from many years during World War II, The Big Sleep. Hooray for us. So this is the time... Uh, this is Bogey and Bacall in their second outing, right? They did to have and have not, uh, like maybe a year or two before. This picture got made and then kind of got remade a little bit. They shot the extra scenes uh, that have some of the spiciest, hottest, grooviest fucking dialogue, which is why this movie, uh, on top of so many reasons, remains eternal. It, 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 to not to spoil anything for you, if you're wanting to make sense out of this movie, I wouldn't really come in with that attitude. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Like, you don't walk into the endless caves of mystery and go, today this shall be solved for a torch I have brung. Uh, you can be Diogenes and fucking look all you like through this fucking movie. You're never going to find an honest plot twist. This movie doesn't know which way it's going. Its right hand is dealing from its left hand every second under the table. Uh, there's chips on there that you didn't see in the rack of different colors and shit. There's every manner of chicanery, bilkery, fucking uh, plot devices... Uh, cheap fucking twists that make no sense whatsoever and then out and out cul-de-sacs that defy you as a viewer to fucking call them out on it you go who the fuck is that person at long fucking last and they go you know what in the movie right here's the deal you bought a ticket sucker and cause it's the 40s you're a rube a hick a hayseed a greenhorn a tinhorn I have with me here the American Thesaurus of Slang by uh, Lester V. Berry and Melvin Vanderbark, New York, Cromwell and uh, Thomas Y. Cromwell, 1942. Uh, the awesome part is a woman writes the um, uh, Louise Pound, no relation, I presume, writes the uh, intro. But the best part is in their thanks, we wish to make specific acknowledgement of indebtedness. That's an old time dedication. As you know, now someone would write, I couldn't have done it without Bunny. <laughs> right? You've read the dedications in books. This is to my wife and both my children. Mi amore, mi tengo, mi cuchapacha. <laughs> you know, you know what people write now and shit, right? Namaste. Mm-hmm. From Coronado. I'm having a weekend. Thanks for reading this or whatever you're doing with it. What? Uh... This, they thank a bunch of people, and, the, and this is what I, because they gathered slang. I don't know if anyone's ever seen the movie uh, directed by Howard Hawks called Ball of Fire, written by Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett. They're compiling a dictionary in it, and Gary Cooper's in charge of the slang dictionary. Uh, they're compiling an encyclopedia. But Gary Cooper's got slang, so he goes to the ballpark, he goes to boxing. Uh, the, the delivery guy comes in and goes, hey, what's the, zing zang, what's the story, hippity dukes, you know, and it's 40 slang and shit, right? Oh. Scotch, there's a thing in your... Hey, I wouldn't put those socks in a drawer if I was you fucking rebob. You know, fucking 40 sign. And, uh, and Gary Cooper, oh, what is, uh, what is, what is the jumping jive? You know, I, I don't know why he sounded like bad Johnny Carson with a cold, but he did. That is, uh, that is out of, uh, con that is slightly... <laughs> uh... I'd like to thank, they thank, uh, their indebtedness, or whatever the fuck they say, uh, so, Uno Paulo Kangas, sculptor. First of all, when your name is hyphenated Paulo Kangas, yes. Paulo means uh, stick, and Kangas is the small baby kangaroo in the Winnie the Pooh books. Uh, Stockbroker, George Cox, veteran oil field worker. That's some fucking oil field slang. Uh, director, here's my best part. Uh, Harry, Ar my best part, what am I, four? This, you, this is my best part. <laughs> Greg, Greg Proofs is writing a story about a movie, The End, The Big Sleep. It is exciting. It is in black and white. It has a person named Bogart and another lady, and she will not call you. Thank you. <laughs> and The End. Film 101 with Greg Proofs. We started three. I found Skyfall predictable. I have watched more than one Wiggles episode, and for my money, the singing and the dancing in the Wiggles outdoes anything the pyrotechnics in Skyfall can provide. 
In this three-year-old's opinion, a disappointment. Like strained carrots, it starts good, but then it's too samey. <laughs> they thank uh, technicians and other staff members of radio stations KFI, which is still a station. Is it right wing? Yeah. Or it's news. Is it right wing still? No, it's rabid right wing. Rabid right wing. Yeah, they, they have uh, Hannity and shit like that, right? KFI. You know what's wrong with this country? Negroes! We'll be right back after this. Little Debbie Cakes, Little Debbie Cakes. They're so delicious. You can't eat enough of them. I don't know why it would be Little Debbie on the West Coast. Harry R. Libke. People's names in the 40s. Really? Mildred? Ralph? Okay, all right. You notice no one was named in the 40s? No one was named, like, Brooklyn? You ever notice that? Even though Brooklyn is so prevalent in the 40s, no one was actually named it until later when people are ironically named it. Uh, Harry R. Libke, director of television station, 1942, you guys. 42? Who had a fucking TV? Two, like two guys in a room. You know what I mean? This is like the internet in 87. Like, <laughs> you know, just, uh, uh. you know, you don't want to be with those guys, right? Like, it's like ham radio. You know, just, oh, you're wearing earmuffs. You're alone. I don't, you know, come on. I've got a thermos. Yeah, I know, I know. That's so you, so you don't have to get up a lot. I get it. It's gripping. It's gripping. Look at the rasters. There's hundreds of them. Harry R. Lebke, director of... First of all, when was the last time someone was called a director of television? And you know that doesn't mean a television director. You know that means the head of programming or the you know, station chief or the PD or whatever the fuck we call them. W6 XAO is the name of the television station. Hello, this is Greg Croops. We're broadcasting now from W6XAO. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's my misfortune to inform you that aliens have landed here in Los Angeles. <laughs> right across the street at Fairfax High School, an alien craft has landed not 20 minutes ago. The sound you hear behind me is the sound of the emergency forces massing to see if they can fight this horrible invasion. The National Guard has been informed. <laughs> it should be arriving any moment from Van Nuys. Please keep your television sets to call set to W6XAO. I'm General Somebody. This is an emergency broadcast. I'm white and reassuring. Don't worry, people of Earth, no matter what sex or race you are. Certainly something positive will happen in this exchange between us and a life form we know to be both homicidal and sodomites. We have taken control of your airwaves. We are 1940s aliens. We are not that frightening, but our heads are hilariously art deco. You may use us in a bric-a-brac situation or in a nook to entertain people. We are a conversation piece. This is General White Person again. Please don't listen to the aliens and their Art Deco faggotry. I'm sorry to use the word faggotry in the 40s. This is Greg Proops back here on WXAO, your television station of note. In 20 minutes, Anderson Cooper in 3D. <laughs> Hi, I'm Andy Cooper. I go to that church. <laughs> I was trying to look for the word, the phrase, the big sleep in this uh, uh, lexicon. And under, on page 131, section 115 to 117, under... Animate existence, the category. Subcategory, life and death. Oh, yeah. This is from 1942. Everyone else is like, is, it, is there an app for this? No. It's called a book. Uh, a is vitality. B, mortality. Huh? See what they did? 117, death, noun. The big jump. 
blow off, bow off, bow out, bump off, the call, croak, the croak act, curtains, the debt of nature. Uh, the deep end, departure, fade out, final summons, fold, fold up, funeral one, get away, go off, great, kibosh, kiss off, last rattler, old floor, old Mr. Grimm. No big sleep. We've tried to determine by using only this lexicon as our concordance. And through casual discussion with the theater staff and my most intimate confederates that we determined that Raymond Chandler must have thought of the big sleep on his own. This is not a scientific discussion. This is simply the opinion of television station W6AOAOW. Please do not let this reflect upon the Brian Setzer Orchestra or any members of the Cine Family crew or grill team or uh, people who work at the concession stand out front. This does not reflect in any way uh, the, the prop master who works here or, or any of the other. Uh, this one I thought was good. As you know, the big sleep is crackling with 40s slang. I believe an exchange similar to this takes place in the movie. You keep talking like that, you're going to be picking lead out of your liver. The cheaper the punk, the gaudier the patter. And Elijah Cook Jr., who's an eternal weasel in about a thousand movies, he's a hard luck, thank you, he's a hard luck loser who tries a million ways to succeed. And I think one of his greatest turns is in Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, where um, uh, Mary uh, Kittens, I've forgotten her last name. Uh, Windsor? Mary Windsor, uh, thank you, is in um, uh, The Killing. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, and uh, she plays the, the gangster mall. And she goes, uh, you know, if you were a real man, you'd get to me some money. And he's like, oh, I'm a real man. You know, like that. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> as soon as you see Elisha Cook Jr., you'll fucking recognize him in this movie. In any case, there's lots of groovy, groovy slang in it. And um, because it's 19, the picture was made at this era, I thought I'd hit you with a couple. Um, underworld, tramp and criminal, A, persons. Under, uh, under persons, uh, lug, man, girl. Beetle, bimbo, broad, curve, dizzy, femme, floozy, flossy, frail, frail. Frill, harp. Oh, I can't read this one. Heifer. You can take it. It's from 42. You understand. You understand. It's now. It's now. Uh, Jane. Jane? Jane is just generically a girl who's the Jane. I don't know, some doxy I picked up. Look at those stems. <laughs> I gave her a couple of green convincers and told her to go to the toity. <laughs> Powder her nose. When she comes back, I'm hoping Daddy gets some sugar. <laughs> Molly. Ooh, muff? Really? Plooch? <laughs> Shepepe. If anyone's ever seen The Music Man, Shapampi, split... Oh, ooh, not, I'm not reading that one. Uh, okay, moving on from that one. That's girl. Uh, then there's a policeman. Uh, tin can cop, harness bull, monkey, pincher, puller, reeler, roach, shag, shagger, Sean, shamrock, Seamus, sham, shamus, shoulder tapper, sidewalk snail, skull buster, sky string. Claw, cop, copper crusher, dick, elbow, finger, flat, flat foot, flathead, flatter, flatty, frog, fuzz, goins, great Caesar. <laughs> Fantastic. I don't know what the fuck that one is. Uh, Hawks wrote a book. Well, he didn't write a book. He did a bunch of interviews with this person, Joseph McBride. Uh, and it's a book called Hawks on Hawks. I think I got it in England years ago. But it's one of the best books I've ever read because it's just conversations with Hawks. And he transcribed them and then... Uh, thank you. And then, uh, and then rejiggered them so that they made sense contextually, right? You know, he like he had these long conversations with them, and then he put it all in place. Uh, separate discussions with Hawks from seventy through seventy-seven at the Chicago Film Festival, DDDD, Los Angeles at his home, and whatnot. Now Hawks was 
thin and had silver hair and they called him the silver fox and uh, he could ride and he can rope and he could fly and he was a badass and he had several wives and I think he nailed every actress who came anywhere near the perimeter of his being <laughs> at the beginning of his career evidently he spoke in a low monotone at all times and never showed emotion and was absolutely stentorian autocratic and waspy in his own way in the early days apparently at every day at 6 o'clock according to Bogart's biography by Eric Lacks he would uh, stop at the same corner in Hollywood and vomit <laughs> the list of his pictures is almost immeasurable uh, he's not John Ford but god damn it uh, right uh, I think my wife might say William Wilder is, is a more emotional director and I would agree with that I think that um, uh, uh, John Ford is in some ways you know quintessentially Howard Hawks is is the it, it is mad at comedy as well as covering a bunch of genres and clippy fucking dialogue and empowered women are the hallmark of his fucking uh, filmmaking and I think that's what sets him apart from almost every filmmaker from that era not that they didn't George Stevens and everyone who made screwball comedies Capra but in the Howard Hawks movie they inevitably sit on a table light up a cigarette and have a drink and if someone doesn't do this in this movie I will come into the audience and make personal oral love to each of you tonight <laughs> I will dare you to watch any Howard Hawks movie and have at any point a girl doesn't walk in and her name is Slim or Ace or fucking Toots or Ryder or, you know, she's not to be fucked with in any fucking way. Lights up something, whether it's a cheroot or a smoke or a corncob pipe or a fucking hash pipe or whatever. Pours a fucking drink and goes, hey, Ace, are you ready for me? And that's how this shit works. And that's why he's immortal, I think, more than anything else. I don't even know if it was intentional. I think it was his personal predilection. In real life, I have no idea what he was like, other than he didn't want to talk about art at all in this series of conversations between 1970 and 1977. Film is a craft that you learned from people who were geniuses. He says he stole from Ford and Ford stole from him. He talks about all the actors he worked with, what his goal was in making a movie is utterly different than the goal that almost every director you'd hear talk about now. He wanted to make a good scene. That's all he talks about. Everything he shot, every scene, that was his concern. Was that a good scene? And if scenes sucked, he'd bury them in the edit or like get rid of them. That was his weird philosophy. He also played on the hoof a lot. I think he told people where to go. I was on a Mike Hammer detective TV show years ago. And one of the cats on the show, a character actor, whose name I forget and I could kill myself for it, uh, was in Rio Lobo, Howard Hawks' last movie. And I said, you were in Rio Lobo. What was it like to work with Hawks? He said, I played a guard on a gold train. And Hawks came up to me. There was no script. And went, you're in charge of this detail. Go up and make sure the gold is safe. When you get up to the train, check around. And then come back down. But don't quite be sure. Okay, let's go. <laughs> and he went, it was the easiest acting I've ever done. He goes, Howard Hawks just fucking told me what to do. And he went up and he went up and he guarded the train and he went, all right. <laughs> and they walked down and that was the scene. And that was like, that is, uh, I think, uh, the grooviness. Let's start with the movies that we would have heard of. He worked on Silence. Uh, let's get to the first big one, The Dawn Patrol. Uh, then Scarface, Shame of a Nation. And that's the one that Brian De Palma based the Al Pacino Scarface on, for sure. It's Paul Muni, and it's the same story, but there's no coke. Uh, <laughs> awesomely, Ben Hecht wrote it uh, with a bunch of other guys, and uh, um, Capone and all the gangsters watched the picture and loved it, because it was based on Capone, right? He's a fucking Italian guy with a scar on his face, it's Paul Muni and shit. And Boris Karloff is the rival gangster, who I'm always talking about on the show, but uh, it, it is wildly thin in it and um, plays a hood. Let's see. Boris Karloff is Tom Gaffney. Uh, George Raft, of course, is the best friend. Uh, Guino Ronaldo. Get the plot? 1932. If you watch gangster movies in the 30s, they're never Italian. It's always Cagney, right? They're always, they're always Irish guys. He's fucking straight up Sicily, right? Uh, he got in trouble when the movie got... Uh, Crowd Roars, Tiger Shark, um, 20th Century, which is extraordinary. We'll go back into that one. Bringing Up Baby with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. Only Angels Have Wings with Cary Grant. It's the flyer movie where dudes die and shit, and they like, you know. Uh, later on to be horribly remade as, uh, oh, that movie with Wesley Snipes where they're fucking skydivers. I love that fucking movie. I'm a piece of shit. I can't believe I brought that up. I kind of love that I did. Drop Zone. Drop Zone, thank you. 
Gary Busey's in it. And he goes, we're going to do the robbery on the 4th of July. God bless America. (laughs) Yeah, you'd watch it. Yeah, you'd watch it. Don't even. I'm sick of your attitude right now. Seriously. Come down from judgment fucking mountain, Hammurabi. Wow, Solomon. I don't need it. You'd watch it. And it ends with, these are the times. These are the crimes. That's right. In Excess closes the fucking movie. Better than Point Break. It has a better closing song than Point Break. Know that before you fucking... Before you have another thought, know that. <laughs> Cue the movie up. It's getting to be time. We've been at how long have we done? We're close to it, I think. We're about five minutes away. Uh, Only Angels, His Girl Friday, which they remade a thousand times. It's the front page. It's also, again, the front page. I think Wilder did it late in the career. Um, it's the front page before it's His Girl Friday. He takes Hilly and makes uh, Hilly a, a woman, and that's what makes it awesome. And it's Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant. Ralph Bellamy is the other one, and um, that one's very funny indeed. And Mordant. Um, it's all about the press. There's a guy being executed, and the press doesn't give a fuck whether he lives or dies, only if they get the story. You'll recognize things. Uh, Sergeant York, which I always thought was John Ford until I picked up this book two days ago. <laughs> And I watched part of it the other day. Well, I went up on the hill and I just started shooting. I wanted to protect the other guys. What you've done is extraordinary. I don't know. I just wanted to. And then The Ball of Fire, 1942. If I recommend any picture this week and if I give you any homework, I think the ball, it's not called The Ball of Fire. It's called Ball of Fire. Um, As I said, Hawks directed it. Wilder and Brackett wrote it. Um, Greg Toland uh, was the DP if that makes any difference to you on a, on a, uh, a screwball comedy but he did shoot Citizen Kane um, and he shot it the same year it's 1942 or it was the year after right Citizen Kane's what 40, 41 uh, Ball of Fire is 42 uh, this one has all the slang and it's the one where Gary Cooper is and I hit the book to emphasize that I work for W6AWO television my name's Greg Proops and we're broadcasting here from the Cine family, it's a remote broadcast. We're talking about books tonight and globes and things of that nature. <laughs> things that are popular with the young people, like the movies of today. And who doesn't love Humphrey Bogart and his scintillating co-star, Lauren Bacall? Why, her sultry look has sent a thousand men's hearts aflutter, while Bogey has scared everyone into a corner. <laughs> Uh, they were having a love affair during the picture and uh, here's the quote that Hawks says uh, he says uh, was it difficult the, the, the guy writing the book says was it do you have any trouble I had trouble the first day with Bogart I think I grabbed him by the lapels and pushed his head up against the wall and said look Bogey I tell you how to get tough but don't get tough with me and he said I won't <laughs> everything was fine from that time on he had a couple of drinks at lunch and that's what caused it Stopped that. <laughs> you can't stop me, Howard. You're dead. <laughs> they were in love when they made the picture. And uh, I believe Hawk says here, um, were Bacall and Bogart easy to get along with on the set? When two people are falling in love with each other, this is the uh, have and have not. They're not tough to get along with, I can tell you. Bogey was marvelous. I said, God help. And after a few days, he really began to get interested in the girl. <laughs> now, she wasn't just smart enough to do it in the third picture. Uh, she for, uh, Blah, blah, blah. He gets into his own bag. <laughs> he teaches her to speak low, right? Lauren Bacall came to Hollywood and apparently had a higher voice than she had. Um, and then he made her go to the beach and read from the robe or was it up in the hills um, it's good when you were making the film and this is my favorite part of the big sleep as I said before don't look for plot in this one this isn't a Hitchcock film where the plot moves a mile a minute and everything doesn't make sense and it just keeps going forward this is a movie where half the time you're like oh okay alright ha- come on movie When you were making the film, didn't you send a telegram to Raymond Chandler, who wrote The Big Sleep, and Faulkner wrote the screenplay, 
at one point asking him to explain what was happening in the story. I asked him to explain who killed so-and-so. He wired back and said it was George somebody. I said, it couldn't be George. He was down at the beach at the time. He wired back and said, then I don't know either. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the big sleep by Howard Hawks. Wow, that one is really, it's, it's still an amazing cracker after all this time. Uh, what an unbelievable selection of open-toed slingback shoes the women are wearing in that movie, first of all, in every scene. Uh, also, did you notice that uh, Bogart is irresistible to every single woman in Los Angeles and that every single one of them is a smoking brunette? Uh, the girl in the bar, the hot check girl, the cab driver, the girl in the bookstore, and the waitress in the coffee shop. Hey, sugar, I got a light. Uh, and she goes... <laughs> like... Uh, that girl who plays uh, the cab driver, the, la uh, the lady cab driver, uh, uh, Joy Page, said that she was really nervous and they had the card in her pocket, right, when she gives him the card. Call me in the daytime, I work at night. And uh, she kept fumbling for it, fumbling for it, and Bogart went, honey, put it in the, uh, the, um, uh, in the visor. And so when you see it in the movie, she goes, whoop, like that, and hands him the card from the visor. Uh, apparently he was cool about that. Um, also, uh, I always think uh, the great gangster actors like um, uh, Cagney and George Raft and are, are superb dancers, right? Cagney's always up on the balls of his feet and Raft always has that deadly walk. But Bogey goes, here, maybe you need this. And the guy, he throws the gun down to the punk and then he, boom, gives him a ballet <laughs> kick in the face. And then at the end of the movie, when he closes the door, he goes like this. And close it like that. He does two ballet kicks in the movie, man. Also, there's a scene where Bogey knocks the gun out of the girl's hand, out of Agnes' hand, jumps down, kicks the other gun out of the way, and comes up with the other gun like that in a second. Uh, that is fucking gangster acting. How about this line? Everybody's always giving me guns. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. And when he goes back to his car, right, which has a B sticker in it, a bunch of cars have B stickers, that meant you get eight gallons a week during World War II. That was a fucking high-status uh, ration sticker in the car. Uh, he opens up the glove box, two jammies, right? <laughs> and then later goes back to the throwdown jammy when they go back to Geiger's for the millionth inexplicable fucking time in the movie. Why do they go back to Geiger's a thousand times? And then why is Geiger laying there dead like Bella Lugosi in one scene? <laughs> Where the fuck did he go? He was dead on the floor. Then he's gone. Then he's just a blood spot. Then Eddie comes in and he's like, well, that's a lot of blood. And you're like, what the fuck? And then later he comes back and he's fucking laying there again. Like Jeffrey Jones in fucking Ed Wood. What's happening? Did anyone have any idea what the fuck happened to Sean Regan? No, no, no one does. Faulkner didn't. Chandler didn't. Bogey didn't. Hawks didn't. Lauren Bacall didn't. Call her. She's in New York at the Dakota right now. <laughs> Lauren Bacall does not know what happened to fucking Sean Reagan in that movie. Uh, how sultry is she? The, this is their second picture together. She was in one in between called International Agent or some awful nastiness. Um, every time she gets in the car and she looks at him, she goes, right? She gives him the giant bunny head like every fucking time she's looking at him. And then when she kisses him, uh, when he kisses her, she, I like it. I want more. That is fucking good dialogue. When Bogey walks in in the beginning and he goes, private dick on a case. <laughs> Could you say that in 1944? Can you say that? He said it. Uh, she tried to sit on my lap while I was standing up. And I don't know if you caught the very first line when she leans on him and then she goes inside. He says to the butler, you ought to wean her. She, uh, she's old enough. You ought to have her weaned. <laughs> Does everybody know what weaned means? Okay, good. Uh, uh, yeah, she could eat solid food. Uh, Martha Vickers, as the sister, as the slutty sister Carmen, is off the hook good. Um, the hub girls, the shorts, in the fucking first scene, the little sassy summer shorts, and then later the slinky dress when she goes to visit him at the house where she's got the glittery jewelry and shit. How about the dress when she's fucked up on heroin and she's going, lolly, 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 that fucking dress. And he carries her in, and when he puts her on the bed, he chucks her onto the fucking bed. <laughs> Every woman in the movie has got... It's my favorite tough girl movie in so many ways. Agnes. 
who works in the bookstore in the beginning, then she was with Joe Brody, then at the end she shows up after having fucked over Elisha Cook Jr. And yes, I was wildly wrong. It's the Maltese Falcon where he goes, you'll be picking that out of your liver. In this one, he's the helpful one. And then what is it? He's a little guy. Now he's dead. Um, but Elisha Cook Jr., hey, brother, that, what does he say? Uh, we're talking about getting married. She's too big for you. <laughs> say, brother, that's a nasty crack. Elisha Cook Jr. Fucking amazing in every movie. Uh, also, Italian gangster with the black fucking outfit and, the, and then him and Eddie when they get shot. <laughs> they do the Cagney fall, right? Where you have no bones and you're, you're just a rigid board. You have rigor mortis the moment of your death and you fall over so that your hat does not fall off. Uh, Joe Brody's the only one who doesn't die that way. When he opens the door, it's bang, bang, and then he falls backwards that way. He's the, but everyone else, <laughs> when Joe gets killed, what does Agnes say in the scene? Not once do I get a man who's smart all the way around the track. <laughs> and then the scene when Joe's explaining his shitty fucking alibi, Agnes's face through the whole thing. And I heard you guys laugh when Bogey walked around her. <laughs> Bogey walks in front of her, and she's just looking at him like, Jesus fucking Christ. What does she say at the end? I got a raw deal. Your type always does. Uh, the dialogue is, is crackling good. Uh, all the girls in it are, are wild. We have a nymphomaniac heroin addict. Does anyone imagine what she's doing when she's having her picture taken at Geiger's house? I think some of us can stretch our imagination. It's not explicitly mentioned in the movie. Evidently, Geiger is supposed to be even more queer and stuff that they cut out. Uh, he's only vaguely homosexual in the movie, right? Because they go, uh, what does she say? Uh, Dorothy Malone says uh, he uh, presumes a, a knowledge of antiques that he doesn't have. Soft all over. She looks at him, fattish. Right? Uh, medium height. Uh, apparently, Hawk said Dorothy Malone was so hot, the girl in the bookstore, that they made the scene better. She gets the cups out of the drawer, and in the book, Hawk says she's shaking. So he, he, they called lunch, and he waited the cups. So she could take the cups out and put them down and stuff. And everybody's line that everybody loves, I just happen to have a bottle of good rye in my pocket. <laughs> As you fucking do. I've got two jammies in my glove box and I carry a bottle of rye with me. What's your day like? Kind of boring? Get on your iPhone and download an app today, did you? Yeah, really? Drive your Prius down to Whole Foods? Was that what your fucking day was like? Because apparently he got laid in a bookstore in an hour <laughs> with a bottle of whiskey and shit. And did you notice that Dorothy Malone's glasses were pince-nays in the scene? They were 40 pi 40s pince-nays. That, that meant they didn't have any rims around the side, just a clip here. And so when she took them off, she went like that. They were just glass. Those are so fucking heavy. Um, really, are we going to talk about spectacles? For a while. <laughs> The first number Lauren Bacall's wearing when she's pouring mineral water from a bottle. By the way, in 1944, only rich people poured mineral water from a bottle into a glass. Um, the, 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 the Asian number. And she's wearing those black velvet flats that you can tell are fucking velvet. Have you watched the movie before, Greg? A couple times I've seen it. I just happened to notice in this one. Because uh, he's in crappy shamas, they keep calling him, right? They keep uh, uh, shamas wear, dick wear. He's got a cat chain, which means he's fucking low rent, right? And then my favorite line, he goes to their unbelievably wealthy house and talks to the unbelievably wealthy general and goes, I get $25 a day plus expenses. And the butler just, mm. Like, <laughs> why didn't you just say you don't get paid at all? And then, then she gives him $500 and he keeps talking about how much fucking money that is. When they're spending how much at the fucking table? $5,000 she's betting in World War II? When people got $5,000 a year to live on and shit? The crowd's quiet. I'm just saying. It's exciting. Mm. Let's talk about the picture. Who's, do you have a, uh, the... Robbo, you got the... Rob is going to walk amongst you with the laying on of hands and the healing. If anyone wants to raise any questions or just talk about anything in this picture, uh, I think I've tried to cover it. Mostly for me, why I love Hawks and uh, Noir in general is everybody acts like a grown-up. Um, let me just put it this way, and I'm without demeaning anyone, although it's impossible for me to speak without doing that. Um, 
When you see Owen Wilson and Jennifer Aniston in a rom-com acting like fucking five-year-olds and shit, and they're both in their 40s, think about the fact that Dorothy Malone is 19 in this movie, Lauren Bacall's 20. Uh, all the, yeah, you guys. Uh, no one acts like they're a kid ever at any point in any of these fucking movies. Everybody smokes and drinks. And in this one, heroin, uh, prostitution, possible pornography in Chinese outfits <laughs> in a bookstore owner's house. Uh, an illegal gambling club? Has anyone ever been to one of those in L.A.? Where the fuck was that? Um, so I just, I love those, these pictures because when I was little, I wanted to be a grown-up. Uh, I never wanted to be a kid my whole life. And now I live in L.A. where no one fucking grows up and 50-year-old men wear white pants and drive a Porsche and pick up girls half their age and it's not fucking unusual. Uh, and the crowd goes quiet again. All right, no, it's normal. No, it's fucking normal, you guys. It's normal. Uh, if you ever go to anywhere else outside of Los, Los Angeles, the rules are completely different, as you know. Uh, if a dude drove up in white pants and a Porsche in another town, he would be a douchebag. Here, he's a producer. Or a manager or something. Uh, but everyone acts like grown-ups in the old movies, and that's what I really like. That and the sassy, scrappy fucking dialogue. Does anyone have anything to say? There's a, there's a person back there. Hello. Oh, hi. Where, hi, darling. Hi. What's hi. your name? Aurora. Aloha. Aurora. Like Aurora. Aurora. Like Aurora? Aurora Borealis. Aurora. Oh, Aurora. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. I was wondering if you'd ever had a chance to read the book, The Big Sleep. I have, yes. Yeah, because I thought it might be worth discussing that the young man who got kicked in the face for his gun yeah. was actually Geiger's gay lover. Right, in, in the, the book. book. And the whole scene where he pretends to be gay to go into the bookstore is in the book, too, even though... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because he's selling dirty books in the back, and that's what the bookstore is. Yeah, it's like. mad pornography. And Carmen is naked through half the book. It's sad that she couldn't be naked. It is sad because she's smoking hot. Uh, the scene where she braces him at his house when he comes home and she's sitting in the chair and she's got the glittery jewelry. In the book, she's at his office and she's completely naked in the bed and he is sweating and he throws her out and then when he, lets, when he throws her out, he's like... Yeah, it's a little more intense. Like He, he doesn't want to let Carmen go, um, but he does uh, at that point. Yeah, the book, that, one, that book holds together more for me. I love Chandler, but like um, I've tried to read... Uh, 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 Farewell, my lovely. Like, I've started it 92 times, and I've gotten 50 pages into it, and I can't make head or fucking tails out of it. It's like uh, the backward Bhagavad Gita or something. It just doesn't make any... <laughs> Chandler's awesome on dialogue uh, and really fucking shaky on the plot sometimes. <laughs> the plot is all over the fucking yard. He didn't know what happened at the end of this movie. He wrote the book. I don't think I need a lot more evidence than that. I'm not impugning Chandler in any way. He's amazing. It's just, uh, yeah, the book, is, the book is worth reading, and it doesn't actually disappoint. The movie's quite good on its own terms. It's not one that's like better or worse than the book, uh, but sometimes movies are. I always think uh, No Country for Old Men by the Coen brothers is better than the book No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy, and Cormac McCarthy's like my favorite writer, but the book's not as good. Uh, the movie actually ki kicks it a little harder. Anyways, uh, who else? Oh, all right, Rob. Hey. Hi. What's your name? Kyle. Hi, Kyle. Do you know Aurora? I'm just, whoa, I love it. It's turning into the 40s. What's it to you? Who wants to know? What's your beef, Kyle? Why are you kicking? You mentioned the multi stopping earlier, and I wondered if you had a commentary or anything on Bogey and Maltese Falcon versus Bogey and the Big Sleep? Well, Maltese Falcon's earlier in the career and it's kind of like his first big, big starring role uh, before Casablanca. Um, I, I, I think that it, it's awesome that he got to play Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe in, in one five-year awesome span. Um, Mary Astor is a little bit like Martha Vickers combined with uh, uh, Lauren Bacall in her part because she's both an irretrievable uh, duplicitous um, spider lady and a murderous horrible wench who uh, kills Miles spoiler alert <laughs> I think he gets better uh, with age and I think with in his 40s is when he's great when you see all the 30s pictures with it he's in with Cagney and stuff or Betty Davis all the Warner Brothers ones uh, he's a little more one note even though he's tenacious um, as he gets older and by Casablanca 
he looks so weary and he acts so the one scene in this movie where does he say uh, I'm tired and I'm sore right <laughs> and he wakes up in that one scene and he's like I just woke up I haven't had breakfast it's two o'clock and you're like you look rough bro <laughs> and I think the gravity of that really carries the day um, not that Channing Tatum doesn't have awesome gravity now. And, no, no, the movie stars of today are terrific. They really knock it down. No, I'm just saying, uh, you were allowed to be old and, and grave. Uh, and, and life and death, right? O- always life and death. Uh, high stakes. Um, the Maltese Falcon, I think, is uh, probably a little better written. Also, you get uh, Sydney Greenstreet and Peter Laurie in the Maltese Falcon. So there's really no... Because it has the best one when Bogey knocks the gun out of Peter Lorre's hand and grabs him behind the back. Peter Lorre goes, you're hurting me. <laughs> That's fucking good movie. That's good movie. Uh, I hope that answers your question. I was sort of all over the map. It, it, there's a young lady up here, Robbo. Uh, uh, oh, you've got someone back there. Lady with Mike in hand right here. Okay, all right. Um, hi, I was hoping you could talk about... Um William Faulkner's role in writing the screenplay. I've always heard that, uh, obviously, he's uh, one of America's like great literary figures, but I always heard that it was, Faulkner felt it was one of his great literary disasters being involved with the screenplay, that he always was really depressed about how it went, but he got paid a lot of money to do it, and I, I was just wondering if you could speak. Yeah, I don't think it's a triumph for him. I mean, I, I, I don't know his personal feelings about it. I haven't read that much about it. Out of Bogart's biography, they say, uh, the one by Eric Lacks, he says um, uh, they dragged him back to write extra dialogue. <clears throat> and then he, was, he wrote this very articulate, like, sort of fuck-off note. I was going to spend a bunch of time sleeping, but who wants to do that and all that? I had to, you know, they dragged him back from Mississippi. You notice there were two other screenwriters, uh, I can't think of his name, Firthman, Firthman and uh, Lee Brackett, the woman who wrote three or four pictures with uh, Hawks. Uh, he had a lady screenwriter in there too. They also, I think, would work on the scenes by kicking it around in the room with the actors. The writers and the actors would actually go, I'm going to say this, and then what would you say? Well, what would your fucking character say? And they'd do it. And one of the scenes described in there is, uh, in the bogey book is that Faulkner would go, yeah, that'll play, that'll play. Like That's how they did it. Because I think Hawks really liked to, like I say, construct scenes and make sure everything went from one thing to the next. So I don't know, like you say, if it's Faulkner's overarching triumph as a screenplay. But then remember, Have and Have Not was called Hemingway's worst novel. I think Hemingway even called it his worst novel. And Hawks bet him that he could make it into his best movie, which it kind of is. Unless you think the fucking what's that one with George C. Scott and Trish Vandiver from The, the Savage is Loose? Unless you think that's his fucking best movie. Um, and the crowd goes quiet. All right. Uh, that's what I... What? what? The Killers. The Killers is a fucking cracker. We should, that one is a... Holy cow. Uh, as sexy as Lauren Bacall is in this movie and as off the deep end uh, as Martha Vickers is vibrating with goodness and Agnes, uh, <laughs> Ava Gardner in The Killers is from the planet Barumph. <laughs> Those stockings in that movie. Wowzers McTavish. That's all I have to say about it. I drove from Raleigh, North Carolina to the Ava Gardner Museum. I'm not gay, and I make no case for it. I drove from Raleigh. I was playing in Raleigh, North Carolina several years ago, and uh, I drove out of church. And uh, Jesus, you guys, I know it's late. I know you're weary. I know your plans don't include me. And I drove to the small town where she grew up just to see the Ava Gardner Museum, which contains some of her costumes, a short film showing in a room about her life that has already Sean Frank Sinatra in it, Um, one of her outfits from Falcon Crest. She was on some soap at the end. Yes. Um, Part of her uh, toilette, there's like a brush and a comb. And uh, that's about it. And I bought... a Christmas ornament that's the Ava Gardner Snows of Kilimanjaro Christmas ornament. <laughs> and even better than that, the Ava Gardner cookbook. She never cooked a day in her life. She drank more alcohol than any human alive. She died at 69. She also dated uh, a, a matador. She lived in Spain for ages. When they were fascist, she dated a matador named Numero Uno. And that was, <laughs> yeah. She had front room dude. You know what I'm talking about? It was Sinatra, Artie Shaw. She said when she married Artie Shaw, she'd never read a book. 
she grew up barefoot in fucking North Carolina and Artie Shaw was an intellectual and gave her all these gave her like Sartre and shit and went like read and she was like huh thinking that's new um, thank you the killers is, is off the deep end good is that crappy remake with Ronald Reagan and Clue Guller is that well it's not crappy but is that supposed to be the same no okay nobody wants it the one with Angie Dickinson you know what I'm talking about Angie Dickinson, not, not, not to be turned up at in any way. Angie Dickinson is to be embraced. Like Jill St. John. Fervently. And in a clench. Sweating from your upper lip. Uh, all right, let's do one more or two more and then we'll fuck off. I'm glad you guys liked it, by the way. I, I knew you would. This one doesn't fail because when she says, uh, it depends on who's in the saddle, like, okay. Okay. Yes, my darling. What's your name? I'm Danielle. Hi, Danielle. Um, I was, I'm kind of a theater major in college. And I'm really? Like, I was kind of a coke yeah. dealer in school. <laughs> I got kind of pregnant once and I was kind of in jail for a while. It's weird. It's funny how those infinitives really don't... Uh, yeah, I understand what you mean, yeah. Kind of drunk now. Kind of interested. All right, go on. Yeah, what was that about? I was wondering if you knew if that was like a subconscious No, I think he just overdid a kink they gave him. I don't yeah. remember him doing it in any other picture. Even in Casablanca, he never does that. Yeah. Uh, but he, from the very beginning in the scene where General Sternwood tells him about Sean Reagan, he walks over to the drinks cart and starts pulling his ear. And then he completely overdoes pulling his ear uh, for the first two reels. And then he calms down on it. And then later he brings it back in like the fifth reel. Yeah. Uh, no, I have no idea where the ear pulling came from. I don't know if it was his. Is it in the book? Might be in the book. Girl, Aurora? No, I don't think it's in the book. I don't either. I think it was a bogey thing. Although they insist, Hawks and Bogey, that they made up the being gay to go in the bookstore part, and of course it's in the fucking book. It's in the book, yeah. I don't know where the ear pulling comes from. It's, it's, it's freaky. For me, it's the cat chain. And watch every gangster movie from the 40s, particularly uh, anything with Dan Durier in it uh, as a gunsel. Um, black shirts for the gangsters, right? He, Bogey wears a white shirt through the whole movie and with a, with a dark tie. But all the gangsters wear black shirts with black ties, including Elisha Cook, including Cannoli or whatever the fuck his name is. <laughs> and then the other hoodlums too. And how about the two hoodlums, the one that he said that, that's what the man said, he said that. And then he says, is he any good about the fat one, the gut torpedo? And he goes, he's there to keep the other one. The other one's there to keep him company, right? So he keeps one guy just to make the other guy laugh. They're not in it enough, quite frankly. And he has the other line, the fact that, go on in, right? He's all bothered. What does he say? What does Bogart say when the guy's got the gun on him? I would, but look at him. He's all bothered and serious. (laughs) They're very good uh, torpedoes. And then there's a movie called uh, The Killer's Kiss by uh, Stanley Kubrick. That's a short one. And that has two good torpedoes in it, too. And the reason why they're good is they're unlikely. They don't look that tough, right? They're just little guys. And the two guys who whomp him and they, excuse me, sir. And they beat his ass and they go, this is our way of saying lay off. Black shirts. Like, that symbol of fucking... I, what if you were alive in the 40s and someone came up to you in a black shirt? You know, like, that's all I can think of. Is like, what would it be like now? It'd be like a dude with like, just like gangster written across his head. Um, by the way, was anyone allowed to open their coat in the whole decade? How cold is Los Angeles in this movie? (laughs) They're in L.A. It's pouring rain, then it's foggy, then later in the movie they go to Rialto, wherever the cock that imaginary piece of shit is, and then everybody's wearing buttoned-up fucking jackets through the whole thing. Bogey only opens his a couple times. Everybody grabs their hat before they leave to go anywhere, even though it's fucking a thousand degrees. Uh, it is the rainiest, coldest L.A. movie of all time, and that's what makes it good. Do you notice in Chinatown, uh, uh, when the, in the beginning of Chinatown, when they find the body in the culvert, it's so much like when they find the car in the water in this movie. When the, There's a whole scene, which you don't see a lot in old movies, of a car being lifted from a thing and the fucking body on the... And he goes, well, Doc... He's like, and he gives you the fucking Dexter CSI thing immediately. He was hitting the head with a sharp object... It wasn't the steering wheel that killed him. The blood was already pulled underneath. Like, they're up, right? He fucking CSIs your ass in 1944. Some fat alcoholic doctor already at the, at the Lido. Where's the Lido in L.A., anyone? We live here. There's no Lido. They're not in Venice. What happened? 
Does anyone else have anything? And then we'll... Next month is Scrooge with uh, Albert Finney. It's our Christmas picture, December 19th. Albert Finney, who won the Academy Award for Tom Jones in 1963. Yes, you saw him in Aaron Brockovich. Yes, you saw him in The Bourne Conspiracy. Um, when he was 34, he played Scrooge, and he danced like this a lot. Because <laughs> he didn't dance that well. Uh, it, it's a really delightful movie. Uh, and Alec Guinness plays uh, Jacob Marley. Uh, and uh, it's very good indeed. I, I like it. I don't know. I'm sentimental that way. I like terse, hard-boiled movies where everyone smokes indoors. And then I also like to cry when Tiny Tim fucking throws his crutch down and shit. <laughs> I mean, I don't watch Glee or anything, you know. <laughs> Although I did audition for the deaf guy in Glee for a while. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Does anyone have any... Oh, did Robbo already fuck off? That's it? You've quit working entirely, Rob. Yes, darling. I think we can leave on this because it's a fantastically salient point. I'm going to repeat it for the podcast listeners who... Oh, I'm sorry. Someone busy taking a fucking phone call at 11 o'clock at night on a fucking Tuesday? Hey, meth dealer, how's your fucking world? Awesome early 80s fucking ring, by the way. Where'd you get the phone? At Plastic Town? Wow. Now, look, I'm going to come to when you're conducting a thing, and I'm just going to talk on the phone and fucking think about other shit. Is that okay with you? Uh, yes. In the movie, uh, if you watch The Big Sleep, and I hope you just did, <laughs> no one locks their fucking doors. Immediately on the first stakeout, he goes up to Geiger's house. He rips the door open on the car. Then Elisha Cook Jr.'s car, Henry Jones' car, he rips that door open. Everybody's reg is on the column. On an open thing. So any fucker could just come up. No one locks doors. And then if you notice the security to Geiger's house, the crappiest key in the world, then he kicks the fucking Spanish windows in and they just fucking open. (laughs) There's like nobody ever, whoop, there was no security in LA in the 40s? You're telling me this wasn't crime town of the highest caliber and shit? Uh, This town was always rotten and corrupt and that's what makes it, well, our special town. Someone needs to make a movie like that now where no one locks their fucking doors. Just that part alone would make people go like, (gasps) (laughs) Can you imagine doing a movie now where people just open doors and fucking reach in glove boxes and go, oh, there's the reg, got it. (laughs) No one has to go like, bloop, 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 or, or whatever. Or with a Prius, you do a little dance or whatever, and a cloud comes by and smiles at you, and an orange drops from a tree, and then the door opens, and... And then a pigeon, you know, balances out your carbon footprint or whatever fucking thing happens, you know. I'm telling you, he got eight gallons of gas a week with that beef fucking ration sticker. And they call one of the bodies red points at the end. I have no idea. I think that's World War II slang. I've never heard it in another fucking movie. Red point. I got a couple of red points for you. What the? It's creepy. Yeah, for meat, right? And then Kelly, he says meat in the other part. There's another scene where someone's dead. Is that, that means casualties in World War II? No, no, no. You, you, got, you got points for how much meat you can get in a week or in a month. Thank you, Kelly. So you got points for how much meat you could get in a month, and that's why he says I got red points when I got a dead body on the floor. That would be a 1940s ghoulish ration meat-eating joke. <laughs> Think about it, bitches. If you like this picture, I would suggest uh, Out of the Past, I would suggest The Maltese Falcon. Um, there's about a gajillion other uh, detective ones, but those ones um, are all in black and white, and people wear lots of hats, and no one ever opens their coat. And if you want to carry that even further into the existential realm, um, simply based on people smoking and wearing coats, I would suggest the movie Get Carter by Mike Hodges with uh, Michael Caine, for he wears a trench coat through the entire movie, and he takes it off maybe once. Uh, he doesn't even unbutton the fucker 
uh, and smokes incessant cigarettes. And two girls beat each other up in a bar, and Michael King goes, <laughs> uh, We'll be uh, here tomorrow. We're, then we're in um, San Francisco on the 30th uh, doing the, um, uh, the Greg Proops Smartest Man in the World podcast. Then we'll be in uh, Sacramento on January 3rd at the um, punchline there. Then we'll be at the Bell House in New York City and Brooklyn uh, on the 19th of January. And back here, of course, for December 19th for the Greg Proops Film Club when we once again convene to show the immortal classic musical of Scrooge. Uh, You know what? Christmas Carol's a downer until they sing. (laughs) Polio's funny if you can dance around and shit. I think Dickens said that in the first, in the preface of the book. Dearest reader, I think you'll find polio most humorous. Stick with me and don't judge. Because Dickens spoke like bad Ronald Coleman. I don't know if you knew that. Or Toucan Sam, if you're old enough to remember. I follow my nose. It always knows. The flavor of fruit, wherever it grows. Thank you very much for coming out. This has been the Greg Cruz Film Club. We're showing the big sleep. I hope every page that you turn is a satchel page. And I wish you nothing but happy viewing of cinema. I love you. Good night.